Let us pray. We thank you, our Father, for your holy word. May it renew our minds and transform our wills, so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. At Jesus' baptism, he was announced as God's beloved Son. During this period of testing in the wilderness, he was found to be faithful and true, the true Son of God, the true Israel. And now he launches into his public ministry. But before expanding on the content of Jesus' ministry, Matthew makes four things really clear about the background of that ministry. The first thing that Matthew makes clear is that Jesus' ministry is continuous with that of John the Baptist. Jesus picks up where John left off. Let's have a look at verse 12. When Jesus heard that John was in prison, he returned to Galilee. No longer was it safe in Jerusalem. There John was despised by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. No doubt calling them a brood of vipers and worse didn't help his cause. But it wasn't just the Pharisees and Sadducees that were a threat. John also managed to upset Herod and ended up losing his head for speaking truth. So Jesus returns to Galilee and there he preaches the exact same message as John. You can read it in chapter 3 verse 2. And you see it here again in verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What the prophets had predicted was fulfilled in John the Baptist and brought to completion in Christ Jesus. And that's the thing about the gospel. The gospel is not something that God hadn't thought about until the first Christmas. The Gospel is a story of redemption that God first promised in Eden. He continued it in Egypt, then in the wilderness, and then in Canaan, the Promised Land. It's a story that Jesus here continues to preach and fulfil. The second thing that Matthew makes clear is that not only is Jesus' message despised, but so too is his background. After leaving Jerusalem and returning home to Nazareth, he then leaves Nazareth, a small rural Jewish black backwater, and he goes to live and to work in Capernaum, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Now this is where Peter and his brother Andrew are fishermen, and it's a prosperous town. According to Josephus, who was governor of the region at the time, this was a town of at least 15,000 people, so it was bigger than Inverell. And most of Galilee was like that, relatively densely populated. But it was a volatile population, often on the verge of sedition, unlike Inverell, I hope. But to the Israelites of Jerusalem, the Galileans were despised as scum. They were called Galilee of the Gentiles. And it was a fairly accurate description because for 500 years prior to the 2nd century BC, 
they were occupied by pagans. So not surprisingly, Greek language and culture dominated the region. The way of the sea, a route from Damascus to Egypt, was one of the oldest and most important trade routes in the East. It came through the region of Galilee and specifically through Capernaum. The whole area was inundated by Gentile influence and trade. So the local Jewish population, well, they were considered unclean by their more orthodox neighbours in the south. They were thought to be living under the shadow of moral and spiritual death. But this is the place that God chose for his light to dawn. A light that dawns on those living in the land of the shadow of death. And that should not surprise us for a moment. Because that's the sort of thing that God does. He chooses the least likely place that the religious might expect to find him. And he goes where most people are likely to be. You know, we often imagine that Jesus' ministry and that of the apostles, that was largely a rural ministry that eventually made it to the cities. But it was actually quite the reverse. The third thing that Matthew makes clear is that the mission to the Gentiles is unequivocally on God's agenda. Matthew recognises that Jesus commencing his ministry in Capernaum is undoubtedly a fulfilment of Isaiah's messianic prophecy. The very area that was once ravaged by the darkness of the Assyrian Empire well, it's now to be honoured with the light of the Saviour. The darker the night, the brighter the light shines. And Matthew's quotation from Isaiah was well, one of the most famous messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. The lands of Zebulun and Naphtali that were humbled in the past are now to be honoured with the Messiah coming to Galilee of the Gentiles. And there in Capernaum, in the midst of the Gentiles, Jesus sets up headquarters for his ministry. Fourth thing that Matthew makes clear is that Jesus' call to discipleship is qualitatively different to anything that's come before. It's different firstly because when other rabbis, other teachers had followers, well, they decided to follow by choice. But Jesus' call, it was actually a summons. It's like he chose them rather than vice versa. And secondly, it's different because he was calling them not simply to be supporters. He wasn't asking for a cheer squad. He wanted them to be partners in his ministry. And their ministry together would be as fishers of men. Along with Jesus, their goal in ministry was to call others to be disciples and followers of Jesus. And that is not simply an invitation to join the team because there's lots of benefits and Jesus is cool. This is a summons to repent. A summons to turn away from self-interest and false gods. A summons to turn towards Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. 
and repentance is never easy. For as well as the cost to our pride, repentance may very well mean a material cost. Though these disciples, these first disciples were fishermen, and they're typically imagined to be poor, they did in fact make a good living by the standards of their culture. They were, for example, far better off than large numbers of farmers that worked the land throughout the Roman Empire. So what they left behind was their father and their family business. The cost would not only have been a loss of income, but perhaps also dishonour in their community. Now it's worth pointing out at this stage that leaving the family business was indeed repentance. Not because fishing and family are in any way sinful, on the contrary. It was repentance because at that point, fishing and family were the alternative to following Jesus. Following Jesus is not simply about giving up something sinful. Following Jesus is about giving up everything and anything that might come before God. You see, idols do not have to be golden, car golden calves. They can be sacred cows, like family first, or, or children's sport, or church tradition. Any number of things can be idols. And whatever it is, no matter how virtuous it may seem, if it takes precedence over God and the Gospel, then it's idolatrous. It needs to be repented of. Following Jesus is a step of radical discipleship. He refuses to be relegated to the margins of our busy lives. His call is not simply an invitation to come if you're not too busy. His call is a summons and he demands to be at the centre of our life because he's leading us into a kingdom where he is unequivocally sovereign. He is the king. And when Jesus begins to be king in your life, you may not have to leave your job and your family, but you will have your old life completely disrupted. Nothing you consider comfortably normal will ever be the same again. So what's that look like? What's disruptive about following Jesus? What does it mean to be partners with Jesus in his ministry of fishing for men, his ministry of making disciples for the kingdom of heaven? Well, have a look from verse 23 to the end of the chapter. Matthew gives us a bit of an idea. Firstly, following Jesus and being partners with him in ministry, well, it means preaching. In verses 17 and 23, we read that Jesus began to preach repentance and the good news, or the gospel, of the kingdom. Now, as soon as I say disciples of Jesus should preach, in the minds of so many, that's going to be met with a lot of resistance. And that's so, firstly, because people, well, they just don't like being preached at. 
They don't like being spoken down to as if the preacher was high and mighty and everyone else needs to get their act together. The other reason people resist being called to preach is that they see it as a specialist task. That's for holy men, that's for trained clergy, not, not for me. Now if you're thinking any of those things, then I have to tell you, you're mostly right. For preaching, repentance and the gospel can never rightly be finger-pointing. It can never be condemnation from the pulpit. Because not only does God's righteousness condemn every one of us without exception, but to every one of us, the gospel is good news. It's God's message of grace for all who place their trust in Jesus the Saviour. And as I said before, the gospel is not an invitation for our consideration. The gospel is a declaration of what is, and it requires a response. And that's what preaching means. It means to declare as a herald. And you don't need to be unusually holy, let alone a clergyman, to do that. Any disciple can make the declaration that God calls all of us to turn away from sin and all of us to follow Jesus in faith and hope and love. To think that preaching is somehow judgmental or that it requires academic qualifications and ordination is to misunderstand the task and perhaps also to misunderstand the gospel. Second thing about Jesus' ministry, in which he calls us as partners, is that Jesus was a teacher. You read it in verse 23. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. And that's what itinerant rabbis did in those days. If they did it well, they attracted more followers and were regularly invited back. When Jesus preached and taught, he usually managed to attract more followers, but he didn't always get invited back so regularly. His message was clearly more welcome on the street than in the synagogue. And though preaching and teaching are not the same thing, there's undoubtedly a considerable overlap. If God calls us to repent, it's important we know exactly what that means. Repent from what and how? If we're going to trust Jesus, then we need to know exactly, well, who is he? And why would we trust him? And if we're going to believe the gospel, then the gospel must have some content. We need to know the depths of our sin from which we're saved. We need to know the depths of God's grace in saving us. We need to know that our forgiveness rests upon the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, on our behalf and in our stead. And we need to know that Christ rose bodily from the grave and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Now all of these teachings, they're profound concepts and all have implications that far exceed anything that's merely declaratory. You can't say it all in a sermon. Now some of that can, 
and should be said in a sermon. But most of it needs to be done in what used to be called catechesis. Now it's more likely to be called discipleship training. Informally, it's what happens in a Bible study group. It doesn't have to mean going to Bible college, but it does mean finding time to read the Bible carefully and thoughtfully. It does mean doing our best to present ourselves to God as one approved. It does mean working hard to understand the Bible and its teachings so that we can correctly handle the word of truth and have no reason to be ashamed. And that does not happen overnight. And nor does it happen by accident. It happens over time gradually. And it happens when we discipline ourselves to meet regularly for teaching and training in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Some of that we can do on our own, but most of it needs to be done in community, in groups. Groups that will speak to us the truth in love, encouraging us with their welcome and challenging us with their honesty. If we are to grow in maturity as disciples, then we must grow in both grace and knowledge. And that means that we are simultaneously both teachers and the taught, both disciples and disciples. Now the third and final aspect of Jesus' ministry, into which he calls us as partners, is that of healing. Now like preaching, healing is one of those words that make people really quite cautious, and rightly so. Healing is unequivocally an aspect of Jesus' ministry, and it didn't go unnoticed. In large measure, miracles were the reason for so much of his following. And he said to the crowd that followed him around to the other side of the lake, he said, I tell you the truth, that you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. And the miraculous signs that they saw were the sick being healed, the lame walking, the blind given sight, the demons cast out, and the dead raised to life. And there is no doubt that those sorts of healings, well, they still happen today, but they're miracles. And by definition, miracles are not the norm, they're, they're the exception. Nevertheless, some today will claim that such miracles are normative in Christian ministry. But that's problematic, because neither Jesus nor the Apostles healed every sickness and ailment that they came across. Healings as such were always meant to be confirmation of messianic or apostolic authority. And though the Gospel of Salvation was never meant to be anything less than the complete healing of body, soul and spirit, the final consummation of our salvation is only ever promised at the resurrection. For now, with the whole creation, we groan as in childbirth. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies, 
So then our bodies, which are sown as perishable, will be raised imperishable. What's sown in dishonour will be raised in glory. And what's sown in weakness will be raised in power. And all of that, that awaits us at the resurrection, it's not promised to us in the here and now. But what is promised in the here and now is healing of broken hearts and broken minds and broken relationships. The promise of the new covenant established upon the death of Jesus on the cross is that God will put his law on our minds and he will write it on our hearts. He will be our God and we shall be his people. Knowing God will be the experience of all from the least to the greatest. And all of this will happen because God in Christ purposes to forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more. And it's the gospel that brings us into the new covenant and the kingdom of God. And so we declare it. And it's obedience to everything that Jesus has commanded us that brings us to maturity and the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so we teach it. And that, in summary, is what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. This is who we are. We are his people who declare his gospel faithfully, who teach obedience to his commands clearly, who bear witness to the grace that binds wounds, heals hurts, sets captives free, and releases the oppressed. Let us pray. We thank you, our Father, for sending the Lord Jesus and calling us to repentance and faith. Thank you for our partnership in the Gospel and the tremendous privilege that we have of being heralds of the Good News that brings salvation to all who believe. Give us faith to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and teach us to obey everything that you have commanded us for surely you are with us always to the very end of the age. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.